The New Testament reading today is from 1 John 3. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit that he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading today is from Matthew. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate for divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, these sayings, this teaching of Jesus, that you would help us to know how we might understand them and inhabit these words, um, and uh, particularly when, where they are challenging to us. Would you give us ears to hear and wisdom to know what the Spirit is saying to the church, we ask in Jesus' name, uh, amen. So uh, missionary pastor Leslie Newbigin, you've heard us speak of him before, uh, he describes the way Jesus alters the conversations of his day, and I think it's fair to say of our own day. He compares it or likens it to an experience that you may be familiar with. You are in a room with someone, or maybe it's a Zoom conference call these days, right, where you're having a conversation with a friend and you begin to talk about another friend, but suddenly that friend unexpectedly shows up in the room the conversation changes because you lose control of it. You don't control the narrative any longer because they're there. And Newbegin simply says that's a little bit the way it is with Jesus, that he enters the world and the conversation changes. So all of the things that God's people have thought about in connection with the kingdom of God and trying to understand the scripture historically spoken through Israel or the period of Israel's own history, that all of that dialogue, all of that discourse shifts because we no longer control the conversation. God has shown up in the room differently in Jesus than he was previously present. So that's what we see in a text like the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in this section of the, of, the, of the text or the sermon, right, where Jesus is in these famous sort of, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? This is Jesus in the room now talking about very familiar commandments and very familiar ethical positions that individuals would have known and have talked about and would have heard the scribes and the Pharisees and maybe even their moms and dads talk about, but now here is Jesus in the room talking about these familiar things, and some of them are challenging. Uh, and today, <clears throat> Jesus takes us into this realm of adultery and lust, marriage and divorce, uh, truth-telling and integrity sort of as the content of conversation, and you immediately recognize that as old as these issues are, they're very relevant and pressing issues in our own day. Even though we live in a moment when modern life has brought its own nuance and twists to all of these same questions. So let's think about how Jesus disrupts the conversation, maybe even that we've been having ourselves, right? Uh, how is he doing that? So first, adultery and lust. So, all right, adultery violates and undermines the oneness of married life. We understand that, um, and some of us understand that more painfully than others, right? Because you've experienced this in the context of life. But here's the thing, literal adultery is the kind of line that you cross, and you almost always know that you've crossed it. But notice what Jesus does. He takes the seventh commandment against adultery and he connects it to the 10th commandment against coveting. In other words, Jesus moves from a line that you can know you've crossed to one that most of us are sometimes even oblivious to the movements of our own hearts. He connects it to the secrets of heart and mind. And that's the kind of line that is hard for anyone else to sort of say anything to you about because it's the interior of your life that's now in view. God sees the secrets of the heart it's also a difficult command, this command around coveting. It's a difficult command to even know how to keep because 
If you've ever felt a feeling or you've ever desired a desire, what do you know? That it is very difficult to change a feeling and change a desire, right? And we live in a historical moment when most of us sort of are often thinking that our deepest desires, our deepest feelings are the actual things that define our sense of personhood. Have you ever tried to change your feelings, change your desires? We get fixated upon them, and yet Jesus has done this most disruptive thing by connecting the dots of a line that seems quite obvious to the lines that are interior and secret, the places, the longings of the heart. At which point, no one that was then listening to Jesus or even now listens to Jesus could say they haven't crossed a line of some sort. We're all broken, and we have no idea how to untangle the mess that we sometimes feel internal to our own selves. It's an important thing to say, I think, and note that Jesus is not here talking about sexual desire. <laughs> sexual desire is something that God grants human, human beings. It's not something that the Scripture condemns or calls us to be afraid of even. Jesus is talking about lust. He's talking about covetous desire that erupts in the context or the sphere of human sexuality. Richard Foster, he says that the difference between lust and sexual desire is that lust turns a person into an object, a thing, a non-person, rather than the image bearer of God that they are. Lust strips that person of agency and personhood. So think about, if you will, just in that historic moment of Jesus first saying these things to a crowd on a hillside, how would you, if you were a man in that day, hear those words? And how would you, if you were a woman in that day, hear those words? Let me just suggest that you would hear them very, very differently. And you'd hear them differently because your experience of life in the earth was very, very different. The power differential between men and women was profoundly different even than in our own age when we still find reason to complain or sort of lament some of the divisions and inequalities that persist in our culture. But in that moment, the distortion, the dysfunction between the way men and women live with power and freedom was quite different. So if you're a man in that particular moment, let me just suggest that I think what you've just heard is that women are not objects for you to toy with, either in your mind or literally. They're not objects before you. And just because they've let their hair down or you perceive them to be attractive, it doesn't make them any more your object. They're not the cause, if you will, of your own spiritual interior coveting and adultery. And if you're a woman in that particular audience and you're hearing this, what do you feel? What do you think as you hear these words of Jesus that are so clearly relating to men differently even than women in that particular historical moment? I wanna suggest that if you're a woman, you would hear Jesus awakening you as a person. You're a human being. You have agency, agency apart from the men in your world and the men in your life. So Jesus is stirring our imagination for a different way of being men and women, a different way of being human beings in the world that we don't objectify one another. 
And he adds here this sort of next troubling section or strange section, right, filled with a little bit of hyperbole and maybe even a little bit of humor if you read it with a sort of a a slant of sorts, right? He says that if if the problem is in your right eye, right, gouge it out. If it's your right hand that's causing you a problem, cut it off. Dallas Willard offers an interesting reading that's a little bit different than we might be familiar with. He says this, he says that the Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that the law was something that everyone could satisfy, and even if that meant going to the extreme of lopping off limbs so that it's better to roll into heaven a mutilated stump than to not roll at all. That's how Willard is seeing the wisdom of the Pharisees, the goodness, the righteousness, if you will, of the Pharisees. And he suggests suggests instead that Jesus is pointing out here the insufficiency of their righteousness, the insufficiency of their goodness, because why? Even a mutilated stump can still have a wicked heart. Remember the earlier line? So the second thing Jesus begins to touch onto or wade into a conversation of his day has to do with marriage and divorce. Um, Again, it's important, I think, just to situate this in a context. And the context is simply that we don't know all that Jesus thought about or even taught about marriage and divorce. We have other texts that sort of reference his teaching. We've talked about those in different contexts of City Church. Um, But we shouldn't take the wisdom here as standalone wisdom or even necessarily guidance for all circumstances. There was a rabbinical debate that was common in Jesus' day, and it certainly seems as though he's tapping into that debate when he refers that you've heard it said that a man may give his wife a certificate of divorce. And the wisdom of that day, or the rabbinical debate, had to do with the ease with which men could enter divorce with their spouses. Palestinian Jewish men were able to divorce their wives for just about anything. They burnt the dinner. It's a situation that Jesus may be speaking into here. Everyone, of course, understood that marital life is hard going, and the Jewish scripture made gracious room even for our inability to rehab a marriage that is going badly. Jesus isn't commenting on all of those texts of scripture here, and he isn't offering particular pastoral advice for any given circumstance of a particular struggling marriage. But what he does seem to be doing here for his male hearers is reining them in, pulling them back by confining divorce to offenses that disrupt the one flesh nature of the married life. And so he begins here to protect against the vulnerable, rather, against further unjust betrayal in their relationships. Remember, Jesus has said that the kingdom of heaven has broken in, and he's inviting his community to hear him, his addition to the conversation. He's inviting them to repent and embrace that which God intends to give them. Here, Jesus reminds us, or he invites us to reimagine a world in which selfishness and betrayal no longer undermine even our most intimate spaces of human relationship. Finally, Jesus touches on this question of truth-telling and integrity. He simply sort of urges people to stop swearing by Jerusalem or the temple or any other thing, you know, the heads of their hair that they can't manage to keep black or turn gray, either one, right? Jesus invites people to stop doing these kinds of behaviors. 
I think of this as sort of akin, if you will, to the childhood oath that some of us would have taken on playgrounds where you say, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And while that has its own little dark history, the reality of how it made it into the 1960s playground that I was familiar with was it was just a way of saying, I mean what I say, or maybe I don't. Jesus connects the dots of oath-taking with taking the Lord's name in vain because you're invoking God's presence to hold you accountable for something, to really persuade your neighbor that you mean what you say and you'll actually be a person who follows through. Oath-taking, Jesus seems to be saying, is really a poor substitute for human integrity where your yes is your yes and your no is your no, where people see what they see in you, they hear your words and they mean what they mean. Jesus invites us to a very different way of being human. These cases, right, they change the conversation, they stir it up, why? Because Jesus is in the room. He could talk about these things differently than the people could talk about them without him. His vision of the kingdom's nearness is that God intends to draw us up into a whole other way of being human, of being renewed in the very likeness of God himself, so that in renewal with our life with God, we also experience renewal in the way we live with one another. What would it be like for our relationships if we were renewed in the likeness of Jesus? who never ever treats us like an object. He never looks at you as someone he could toy with. He never forsakes or leaves you even when we've crossed those lines. He never overpromises. wow. It's amazing when you listen to things that sometimes parents say to kids and we promise them things we have no power to deliver on. That's never ever what Jesus does. He never overpromises. He always tells the truth in love. He is the one who can untangle the messiness of our own human hearts. Let me just close this way. A little story out of my own life of prayer, which is not perfect, but is something, <laughs> thankfully. So and I typically take the morning time to sort of spend a little bit of time in quietness and prayer and reading and different things like that. And for the last few days, last week actually, I kept thinking of a book by the Czech uh, theologian and priest, Thomas Halik. And it's a book called, I Want You to Be on the God of Love. It's just a little book in which he's reflecting on some of the teaching of St. Augustine and the freedom of just being before the Lord and being the one that God wants you to be. And there was an end part of the book that I kept thinking, I need to go back and reread that. I just need to go back and reread that. And so for about four or five days, I would have this thought as I would sort of come to the end of my prayer time. And I would think, I need to go back and read that, pick, pick up that book and read the last part of that book. And I just wouldn't do it. And then the next day, the same thing would happen. And then the next day, the same thing would happen. And finally, last Sunday, I thought, you know, since we had a snow day, I said, <laughs> I'm going to read it. I picked it back up and I started reading the back of the book, the end of the book, rather. <clears throat> and it's a place where Halik offers the analogy of a teacher who sees a student and the teacher looks on that student with confidence and hope, perceiving gifts within them that they themselves are not yet aware of. You know, just to pull this into our modern moment of just baptizing, right? When you as a parent look on a child and you see things in your child of goodness, of beauty, of truth, of possibility, 
of giftedness that they themselves, because they're little, have no observation of themselves. Or maybe because life feels complicated, they have no sense of themselves. What is it like when you're on the receiving or the giving end of that in a relationship that you've been in? We've all been there where someone has called us out or forward really into something far greater, a greater expression of ourselves. Well, Halik says that's a beautiful analogy for the way we think about God and the way he sees us. The way God looks on us through eyes of love and calls forth something new. Here's what he says. He says, if we manage to see ourselves with the eyes of the one who loves us and trusts us, all of our overwhelming feelings of unworthiness and inadequacy are immediately dispelled. Who doesn't long for that? He goes on, he says, and in that moment, we're encouraged to fulfill the potential that still slumbers within us, the potential that love alone can see and love alone can awaken. Friends, this is what we need to hear when we read the words of Jesus. God sees you through his eyes of love and his eyes of trust. Have you ever thought about God looking on you and saying, not only I love you, but I trust you? It's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. God sees the slumbering potential within you, within us, within our community, within our world that only his love can see and only his love can awaken within us, within the space of our complicated stories and lives of line crossing. When Jesus spoke to the crowd in those days of his earthly life about law and ethical practices that everyone was talking about in some place or another and everyone had some sense of and probably everyone felt overwhelmed by, Jesus sees the slumbering potential within them, within us, within you. And the entire reason that Jesus is in the room in that particular moment is to rouse us so that we see what he sees. And we wake up to a whole new way of being ourselves as those so loved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.